the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you joined me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls, answer your questions about the things you care the most about. Uh, as I'm fond of saying, we talk about, well, God and the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about worldviews and world religions. We talk about the past, which is well, history, we talk about the future, which includes not just prophecy, but remember I've been t- telling you that prophecy incorporates two great big ideas. One may include the idea of telling the future, but the other one is telling the truth. So we talk about the past, we talk about the future, but sometimes we talk about the present. And um, according to the BBC breaking news, um, it says that a United States court has released a list of the people who are connected to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, And it says, according to the BBC, it says some of those names are accused of wrongdoing while others on the list which was expected to include some very high-profile individuals, are making allegations or as potential witnesses. And a judge ordered the release as a part of a lawsuit that was related to Epstein's associate, Ghislaine Maxwell. Now, it's interesting. She's serving a 20-year jail term for crimes against children, crimes that she committed when she was with Jeffrey Epstein. And so there are some 187 people who were previously known as John and Jane Doe's. And when ordering the uh, release of the list, New York Judge Loretta Preska said many of those named in the lawsuit had already been identified by the media or in Maxwell's criminal trial. She added that many others didn't raise an objection to the release of the documents. And so according to a number of different outlets, the judges ordered the release. Now, Babylon B, this is fake news. This is, uh, I mean, in the sense... It's fake news that you can trust, delivered straight to your inbox. Now, I've I've had the editor of the Babylon Bee on, and, of course, it's a sarcasm site. It's a sarcasm site. I'm going to repeat it. It's a sarcasm site. And they have posted this headline today that Epstein documents delayed to, were delayed to give Bill Clinton time to flee the country. They, they're, they're reporting after the release of the unredacted documents um, that, well, it was designed to give the pre- former president more time t- to say goodbye. So, yeah, it's a it's 
things are about to unfold. It's going to be very, very interesting. Now, back to what we were talking about um, in the first hour. I was talking a little bit about the distinctives of Christianity, and I talked about how Christianity has a distinct view of God. It's, it's a Trinitarian view that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is distinctive in its revelation, the belief that the Bible tells us true things about God and that God has spoken clearly, legitimately, um, and inerrantly, by that means with no mistakes, that he's spoken us to us in the Bible and, he, and he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. And then the third distinctive had to do with salvation, that you're saved by grace through faith. And I've been talking also about a headline that's been posted at our, our the, the website that we have, Christian Headlines, ChristianHeadlines.com. And Jeremiah J. Johnston, who's been on this program, he's also the president of the Christian Thinkers Society, has, has uh, listed 10 ways that Christianity has made the world a better place, which I thought was very, very interesting. And I've talked a little bit about some of those things that uh, Jeremiah Johnston has pointed out. But one of the things he talks about is the problem, if you will, of people who embrace an atheistic ideology that results in the in the deaths of millions and millions of people. So he talks about the regimes of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and Mao Zedong. And and he was asked, you know, these have atheistic roots. Why were these men drawn to atheist thought? And uh, Jeremiah Johnston says all four of these men, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao Zedong had broken relationships with their fathers. Their fathers were either violent or atheist or both. And he says, and he writes that atheism served Hitler and company well, because without God, one can easily do away with the Judeo Christian worldview and ethics and morals Another way of saying it is that if you can do away with the God of the Bible, then you can do away with the moral and ethical framework that the Bible provides. He points out that with God out of the picture, it's easier to argue for the elimination of unwanted people, easier to justify violence, easier to justify war, easier to promote a superior race or ideology that tramples people underfoot. He writes, in short, if you want to be a thug, it's easier without God muddying the waters. In other words, if there is no God who's made a a declaration of a moral or ethical behavior, then we can we 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 can't appeal to the god of the bible or even the bible's moral or ethical framework 
And so he's making the argument that with the God of the Bible and with the Christ of the Bible, you have the moral and ethical underpinning and then the revelation. And then he also points out that you you attribute social and cultural freedoms of women to Christianity too. Will you explain how Christ brought equality to fruition? Why was the early church so attractive to women? So, so what he's basically saying is Christianity has an attractive morality, but he also says that Christianity has an attractive sociology. In other words, the way people act towards one another and that the Jewish scriptures teach that God made human beings in his image and Jesus and his followers rightly inferred from that teaching that men and women were equal. Men and women may have different complementary roles in family and public, but in the eyes of God, they are equal. In other words, They're equally significant, equally um, important, equal in, in intrinsic value. That was an idea that not all pre-Christian ideologies embraced. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Gino Geraci inviting you to call 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And like I said, it's easy to do. You just pick up that phone. You dial the number 303-873-1935 with your comment or question. Would love to hear from you. I've been talking a little bit about the distinctives of, you know, what makes Christianity different from other world religions. And I've also been talking about an article that's been posted at ChristianHeadlines.com by Jeremiah Johnston, and he talks about some of the ways that Christianity has made the world a better place. And he talked about, well, the Christian message. He talked about the Christian morals. He's talked about also the fact that according to historical biblical Christianity— and I guess a case can be made for Judaism, that the Jewish scriptures taught that God made human beings in his image, and that Jesus, being an observant Jew, and his followers being observant Jews, inferred from that that human beings were equal. Men and women may have different roles in family and public, but in the eyes of God, they are equal. So early Christians demonstrated this belief by entrusting positions of leadership to women. Gifted, educated women were permitted to speak in the Christian congregation and churches. They were permitted to exercise leadership, and the church also showed compassion to the sick and to the poor, to the needy, to the homeless. And so that Compassion attracted people to the message. It attracted people 
who felt abused and neglected and unloved. And so the question that was asked to him in the article at ChristianHeadlines.com, Jeremiah Johnson said, uh, was asked the question, why does our world still struggle with many of the values which Christ ingrained? He says, many of the values of Christ clash with selfish worldly ambitions or values. So he says, even when the human conscience tells us that this or that is wrong, we often will do it. Humans want to do what they want to do, and they do not want any authority to say this is wrong. It's almost like discipline. The child gets angry and wants to strike out, or the child wants to eat ice cream and not his dinner. So it is with adults. We often want to do things that will hurt ourselves or others. We're all too willing to cause long-term damage for immediate gratification. Now, carry that into the very real world in which we live. As historical biblical Christianity, as a Judeo-Christian moral and ethic begins to dissolve and then go away, so does so does any pretense of right and wrong. You know, again, when we think about what's going on in the popular culture and in the popular um, news where a um, president of a major Ivy League school is accused of plagiarism. Plagiarism is really a kind of cheating. But what does it matter if you're cheating, if you can get away with it? And so, again, there is just this sense when something is racially motivated or if you embrace what I call ideological social justice or what has been more popularly called woke justice in our woke social justice in our contemporary culture. Remember, you're you're, you're speaking to a group of people who tend to characterize and frame all problems in terms of the oppressed and oppressor. So, in a way, Christianity made the world a better place because it differentiates between love and redemption, the growth of hatred, trauma, and then a mechanism for forgiveness, for hope, for reconciliation. So Jeremiah Johnson, in his article, he talks about the quality of forgiveness and redemption, that trauma can lead to hatred and a desire for vengeance, even self-destruction. He talks about Hitler, Stalin, and other violent tyrants who suffered trauma in childhood and youth and experienced little or no love and no redemption. Why some people respond to God's loving grace and find redemption and others do not, he writes, 
is difficult to say. So that's a whole nother issue and a whole nother question. Why is it that some people will respond and others won't respond? Jeremiah Johnson writes in his article, Hitler himself had a moment when a priest confronted him and challenged him to abandon his evil, violent past. He was initially shaken, but then chose to ignore the pastoral warning. Hitler hardened his heart, just like Pharaoh did thousands of years ago, and then led Germany on a path that resulted in unimaginable death and destruction. So think about that statement. When one person says, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what you say. This is exactly the, the, the line of reasoning that takes place in Matthew 18 when Jesus talks about what to do when confronting sin in the church. Not sin in the world, but sin in the church. He basically says, go and try and work it out. Talk about it with your brother. And if he doesn't receive you, take two or three witnesses so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact could be established. And then if they refuse to hear it from them, then tell it to the church. The whole point being, are you willing to do what the Bible says? Are you willing to do what the Bible instructs us to do? And so the final thing that he talks about in his article at ChristianHeadlines.com, he says, how has Christianity ultimately brought the only redemption available to us? I like this. He says, Christianity is the only faith that holds the view that God himself has purchased our redemption. In no other religious thought or system do we find God or a God, small g, who suffers for humanity and in doing so brings about redemption. All other systems teach either that we learn to accept life as it is or that we attempt to redeem ourselves. And it's not a surprise that the Christian message of a loving and redeeming God has attracted 2.4 billion followers more than any other faith. Pretty attractive. Pretty significant. If you'd like to join me, 303-873-1935. That's the number. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining me, 303-873-1935. Hey, we're going to get to Steve's interesting um, thoughts, but before that, Kathy um, is calling. Kathy, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you, Gino? Doing good. How can I help you? Good. Uh, well, 
I don't know if this is a silly question or what, but the last few weeks I've been thinking a lot about um, what I've always been fascinated and and reinforced in my faith by the efficacy and and the reliability of the scriptures. Uh And I know that uh, primarily the gospel accounts were eyewitness accounts, either by somebody like Matthew or John who like that, but Luke would interview or Mark would interview somebody who was an eyewitness. And so I'm assuming that the first couple of chapters, three chapters of Matthew, were uh, things that perhaps Matthew interviewed uh, people about because he hadn't been called as a disciple. He didn't witness, the, obviously, the birth of Jesus uh, or the maybe the baptism because he looks right. like he was called later. Um, and then you go right from the baptism in chapter 3. And then we got the question I have is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, which is, of course, his temptation in the wilderness. Right. And I, I believe with all my heart that this happened. I just don't know how Matthew would have gotten this detailed information. Is, is that something that Jesus would have told him or someone else maybe uh, saw happen somehow or witnessed that whole transaction? How did that yeah. come about? No, no, that's a great question. And the way that I think I would answer that question is there seems to be good evidence that Jesus did tell his disciples certain things. And the way that I would point that out is most scholars believe that Mark's gospel is the oldest gospel. And it's the account mm-hmm. that that Peter gives to Mark and they write down. But there seems to be also evidence that that there may have been a compilation of information that was gathered together and then that that was used. But to your point, yes, just like Luke, he's a careful scholar. And he is, you know, obviously as a, as a tax collector, he can read and write. And he knows how right. to get information. And so there could have been um, a number of different venues in which um, this all happens, but there's a thread that's taking place. And the reason why Matthew is including that information, you'll remember in the first few chapters, um, it, it, the point of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the king. He is the right. king by genealogy. But before a king can rule others, he has to be able to rule himself. That's why Saul lost the kingship. He he was an, unable to right. control himself and obey God. And so Matthew is going to point out how the king meets his enemy. And so there is a revelation, if you will, of the series of temptations Um that take place. And um, so, uh, uh, you know, he's going to talk about worship and wealth and, and walk, but all of that, he, I think he's getting from information. Jesus must've talked about this and uh, okay. the other disciples must've talked about this. Well, I wondered about that because one, I don't know whether it was the enemy trying to plant some sort of doubt or my own brain that kind of went there. But I got to thinking, I thought, I had been reading in First um, John and, and in Peter's, um, you know, epistles saying, hey, we were eyewitnesses of this. And I'm like, wait a minute, who is the eyewitness there, you know? Right. Well, uh, but what he's talking about, it, yeah. In First John, he talks about that which we've seen handled with our own hands. And so right. by, by eyewitness, are they eyewitnesses of all of the events? Yes no. and no. Yes and no. Not of his birth. Other, correct. 
so there has to be an interview with Mary and the people, right. the principals who were involved. They did have access to James and Jude, Jesus's brothers oh, right. and sisters. And so people must have talked about this. Okay, but I'm think, assuming, and I may be wrong, that the temptation of Jesus recorded in Matthew 4 was a one-on-one with him and Satan and nobody else was there. Correct. Except for the angels at the end, because it says the uh, devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. Correct. But they they weren't there present, well, maybe watching, but they weren't. That's, like, that's what I mean by yes and no. That's what I mean by yes and no. They would have okay. been physically present to see miracles of healings and, yeah. and, and witnesses to what he said. But also, there must have been at some point in the ministry where Jesus reveals this information. Right, right. And he quoted so much out of Deuteronomy, which, of course, um, to me, verifies the Old Testament and the Mosaic law and, and, and the power of the word. Because um, when I confronted, you know, had spiritual warfare, you know, the only weapon we've got is the word. And uh, how many sermons have we both heard? Hey, if it was uh, Jesus' weapon against him, then that needs to be our weapon. So I'm, I would be willing to assume is that the right word or maybe concede that he told Matthew and the other disciples, of course, about this confrontation he had with the enemy to give them that same sort of uh, weaponry in their spiritual warfare. Is that correct? That is correct. And and so okay. uh, whether uh, who he told it to and under what circumstances, we have every reason to believe that Matthew's record is correct. And yeah. so, actually, this is a great segue to another question. But, hey, thank you for your call. Yeah, thank you very much. This has bothered me for a few weeks, and I keep thinking I should call and just find out. Well, I'm glad <laughs> that right, you thank called. thank you. Thank you. Have a good year. Thank you. Bye-bye. 303-873-1935. Steve, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Gino. I know you and I have spoken previously about Grant Jeffrey. Uh-huh. A professor, a PhD in, in, in prophecy, he wrote a book, and this is to your point about where are these other, uh, some of these movements like Hitler, et cetera, where do they come from? And in, his, in Grant Jeffrey's book, The Prince of Darkness, he states that uh, there's ample evidence that proves that Adolf Hitler, Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler, and Joseph Goebbels were surrounded by occult and satanic influences. The dreaded SS secret police organization was a secret religious body that initiated members with satanic blood oaths to Lucifer. A number of the top Nazis requested occult religious rituals prior to their execution after the war and been tried at the Nuremberg trials. At the Nuremberg, the leaders of the West, including Churchill, decided to suppress the evidence of the true occult motivation of the Nazi leaders' attempt to conquer the world. Winston and Churchill and other Western leaders felt that the public could not handle the truth. And then later on, uh, like a quote, Hitler had sold his soul to the devil in an appalling occult ceremony. Yeah, the way that I would, yeah, the way that I would respond to that is broadly is and, and say, okay, I am willing to concede that there were satanic influences involved <laughs> in, in in um, the life of Hitler and his minions and all of that stuff. 
Um, I'm also willing to concede that there are people who have participated in uh, occult rituals that include the famous selling your soul to the devil. Now, that idea isn't a biblical idea. In other words, so if we ask a different question, um, can Satan or demons offer you a deal? You know, can they, are they like a, a, a demonic genie that can grant your heart's desire, wealth, power, beauty, whatever? And, and I would be willing to concede that people in rebellion and disobedience um, are cooperating with Satan and Satan's agenda. And I think that it's also possible that demonic creatures can grant information to people. But the idea sure. of selling your soul to the devil is more cultural and literary than biblical. The Bible actually never records an account of a human being bargaining with Satan or demons. But it is interesting. Agreed. But another thought, does Satan have a board of directors that is constantly, since Jesus was on the earth, preparing for the you, end times? You hold on, and I'll, I'll, I'll give that a stab, okay? I'll give that comment a stab. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we come back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm talking with Steve. We briefly talked a little bit about Hitler's contract with Satan. And um, before we went to the break, though, you were talking about um, Satan and whether or not he has a kind of, dare we use the term, what was the term you used? Um Board of Directors. A Board of Directors, yeah, like the Cosa Nostras, yeah. sort of a demonic Cosa Nostra where you have, you know, the you, you have the Godfather, dare we say, you know, the the Antichrist God, you know, the the yeah. Satan leading the pack and then the maybe a capo, you know, a, a lieutenant or whatever. And I think the way that I would answer that question is we have every reason to believe, according to the Bible, that there's a hierarchy of angels. And because there are a hierarchy of angels and one-third of the angels fell, is it reasonable to assume that there's a hierarchy of demons? And um, according to the Bible, there seems to be, of the first order, a group called Seraphim, which are the burning ones and the cherubim and the thrones and then dominions and virtues and powers and principalities and archangels and angels. So as you go through that hierarchy and, and if what the Bible seems to say that a third of the angels are fallen, okay, um, uh-huh. that, that, they're, that they're angels in rebellion, um, uh-huh. that there's probably a hierarchy of fallen angels. And then in Jude chapter right. 1, there's only one chapter, but in verse 6 it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment in the great day. So apparently there's certain kinds of angels, okay, who for reasons yeah. that I don't have a good explanation for, 
um, have the ability to manifest themselves to human beings. But I'm going to suggest that maybe that isn't that isn't true of all um, angelic creatures. So my guess would be because there's a hierarchy of angels, there's probably a hierarchy of demons. No, I, and I would certainly agree with that. But you know, given the fact that Jesus did not know the time and the date of his return, you know, it's it's pretty fair to assume that 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 information is being withheld from the demonic influences and Satan. I think that that's Therefore, exactly right. He, so wouldn't he have to have preparations ready, virtually at all times, since Jesus defeated him on the cross? To present to present the Antichrist, to present I'm, the false my view, prophet. My my view is that that's exactly the case. That in every generation, if you want to use that term, that there is a yeah. uh, there's a quiet preparation for an Antichrist like figure. So whether we're talking about, you know, a Napoleon Bonaparte or a Genghis Khan or a and fill in the blank, you know, Adolf Hitler, fill in the blank, Um, that there has to be a a kind of preparation. Because my own, and it's just not my view, but I think that the Bible seems to support the view that uh, demons literally... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They participate in opposing the plan of God. So in in my oh, view, yeah. the, the way that they oppose the plan of God, they, they don't know everything about everything, but they know that God has a plan and that in that plan, it includes uh, overcoming or, or undermining God's plan. So do they know everything about God's plan? No, but they at least know what you and I know that's been given in the Bible. If there's a revelation in the scripture that's been given, then they know that that is true. And so it could very well be that they're working to, um, to undermine that plan. Makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, and I think I heard, that. Go ahead. I was trying well, to. And fig- I heard a seminary professor talk to the same thing, and he mentioned a number of of very famous names and some from old wealth from Europe, predominantly, that would have been instrumental in in keeping this group going. Interesting. Well, and and again, it's it's that. That interesting relationship between the supernatural powers and the reality of the world in which we live. So I'm thinking about the whole great, the great big idea. The great big idea is the Bible says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And I suspect it's more than a metaphor that the whole world doesn't, metaphorically lie in the lap of of the wicked one, but that these seraphim, cherubim, thrones, dominions, virtues, powers, principalities, archangels, angels. Uh, Michael Heiser famously um, talked about 
the council, uh, uh, that there was a council um, of Elohim. And he rightly understood the term Elohim to mean a spirit being. In other words, so it's a word that, depending on the context, can be a reference to God or gods or spirit beings, depending on the context. And so Uh spirit beings are not human beings, but human beings are spirit beings because we have a soul and a spirit. Right. And so in that sense, when, you know, you think of the, the, the Davidic passages in the book of Psalms, where it talks about you yeah. are God, has it not been written that you are God's Elohim, that you're a spirit being yeah. as well. And so yeah. I, the, so the, to, to me, the great big question becomes, to what extent can spirit beings influence each other? And, and of course, we have examples of possession in the Bible where spirit beings yeah. possess human beings. Um, and so, again, how profound is that? Um, can a possessed person retain parts of their own identity? And then I think back to the book of Acts, where you'll remember there was a, a woman who, was, uh, uh, who pr- practices divination, and it was called right. Pith. Pythos, which is where we get the word python. In other words, it's a kind of spirit that squeezes you. But apparently she's demonically possessed, but she seems to be able to function like a normal human being in, 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 in public until Paul turns around and, and, and exercises the demon from her. So it's all fairly nuanced and interesting. But fortunately, we know who wins. Amen. We know <laughs> that that you know the writer John says, "Greater is He who is in you than He that is in the world," and yeah. that even though demons are trying to thwart the plan of God, God's plan will be implemented. It will happen. Absolutely. Yep. So. Interesting. Hey, thank you for that call. You're welcome. Thanks, Gino. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, uh, when I think about all of this stuff, it's very, very interesting. Might even do a whole episode on the hierarchy of angels. Wouldn't that be fun? This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. God willing, and the Lord and the crick doesn't rise. I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions. Thanks, Kelly. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.